great to see you all. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Philip, I lead the church here, and uh, I'm going to be continuing our series of talks uh, called The Trial, uh, which as Nick mentioned, we're in a series of talks from the Bible called The Trial, based in the book of Romans. So if you have Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 shortly. And this is the penultimate talk in our series. So if you're brand new this morning, you're joining in towards the end of the talk, but I think you're going to hear uh, what I would suggest is something of the pinnacle of the Christian gospel, and we'll get into that in a second. Uh, I was in, uh, in Brussels earlier on this year. Uh, Caroline and I were both in Brussels earlier on this year visiting my brother. And uh, he and his wife live, have lived in Brussels for a number of years. Um, his wife, Anna, uh, is not Belgian, but she was born and brought up in Brussels. And uh, as, we, as we were with them that week, Anna actually found herself in a law court that week. Now, if you've been here for a few weeks, you'll know that I usually start these talks with a, a court story to try and help us get into the theme of the gospel, because Paul's gospel angles in Romans are often using a legal lens or a legal framework. Um, and so what I want to do really now is to use this court story of Anna's, my sister-in-law. So I'll let her take over the story, and she will tell us why on earth she found herself in a law court uh, earlier on this year in Brussels. And she says this, Cedric, or said, was one of nine children. His parents were unable to look after him, and so from a very young age, he lived in a care home. At the age of 11, my parents, so this is my sister-in-law talking, my parents started fostering him, and so he came to live with us, the Cathy family. He never experienced family life before, so it was hard for him and for us to adapt. But the longer he stayed with us, the more he integrated into our family. And at some point, he started to express his desire to be adopted into our family. He had had no contact with his father and very little contact with his mother. He saw her a handful of times when he lived with us. His desire to be adopted came from a sense of wanting to permanently and officially belong to our family. He didn't want to be reminded for the rest of his life of his past. But while he remained under 18 and his biological parents refused the request for adoption, there was nothing my parents could do. As an adult, Sed continued to express the desire to be adopted, and so my parents pursued the process much more actively. Things moved slowly, but finally, the day came where the adoption would be legally finalized in a court of law. And this was the day I happened to be in Brussels. This was a much-anticipated day for our family. We were told that it would just be a case of some legal details being completed as we instead declared our mutual desire for him to be legally adopted into the Cathy family. To everyone's amazement, however, said biological mother appeared at the courtroom to argue her case against the adoption. Said had not seen her in years. He was in total shock, as were all of us. Because he was an adult, the judge asked him to express his reasons for wanting to be adopted by our family, the Cathy family. And this is what he said. <laughs> I was promised a little bit hard, shouldn't I? It's in the beginning of the preach. This is what said said in this law court. He said, this family have shown me what true love is. They have shown me what real family values are. They have loved me unconditionally, even though I was difficult to live with. I want my future wife, there she is, my future children to have the Cathy surname because I want my future to be determined and lived like the family who have brought me up and not the family I was born into. Amazingly, 
Whilst we were in court, the biological mother, during this exchange, actually changed her mind and agreed with the adoption in the end. It was an extraordinary scene. You can imagine, we were all in tears. It took another few months to officially go through, but said Cathy is now officially adopted into our family. And said got married uh, earlier this year, and he is now Mr. Cathy, and his wife is Mrs. Cathy. And they are, as a result, I suppose, brother and sister-in-law to my brother. And it's a wonderful story, and I could, I could reflect on different, lots of different angles of the story. And it's been a privilege as, to be kind of observing it, at least from afar, I guess, as part of the wider family in all of this. But a number of things jump out to me from this story, and maybe one in particular, or two in particular. You see, Sed was an adult when this adoption took place. It took place this year, and, and there he is. He is an adult when this took place. In some senses, he had no need for an adopted family. He was living an independent adult life in Manchester, about to get married. He had no need, in some senses, for the security of an adopted family, literally, to care for him. But for him, having the Cathy family name meant two things. It meant fully breaking ties with the past, and it also meant embracing the security of the future. He wanted his wife to be a Cathy. He wanted his children to be a Cathy the future. But he also wanted to fully bring the past to an end. That was why, or as part of why, it was so important for him. He could deal with the past and he could move confidently forward into the future, not least into his marriage. It gave him security and it gave him confidence. That's what the adoption did for him. And it's this issue of security and confidence through adoption that Paul, the author of Romans, is about to highlight this morning in Romans 8. I think that's why he uses the metaphor of adoption to help us understand something of what God has done. And we've looked at all kinds, haven't we? All kinds of angles of the gospel, of the achievements of Christ through his death and resurrection over these past eight or nine weeks. But I would suggest this morning that the theology or the doctrine of adoption is the pinnacle It's the pinnacle of the gospel. It's the thing that gives us ultimate security and the thing that gives us ultimate confidence. So if you're not there already, turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and we're going to be in verses 15 and 17. These are wonderful, wonderful verses. This is what Paul says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And wonderful, wonderful verses. I think Paul wants to tell us three things through these verses this morning. The threat of insecurity. The gift of confidence. And an invitation to action. The threat of insecurity, the gift of confidence, and an invitation to action. And as always, I want us to be considering how we're going to respond to what God is saying this morning. Whenever we hear what God says through his word, it's fitting that we should look to respond to that. And I want to encourage us to be thinking through what is our response towards the end as we get to the invitation to action. But first of all, the threat of insecurity The threat of insecurity. I think if we're honest, all of us know what it is, don't we? To occasionally feel little insecurities. Maybe it's just me, I don't know. All of us know what it is to occasionally feel little insecurities. I found myself, I was at the gym uh, two weeks ago, 
It was my birthday, and uh, Caroline kindly got me a, a guest pass for, the, for David Lloyd Gym in the Rotunda uh, in Kingston. Very nice gym. And uh, as I was in there, I went over to use one of the, one of the weight machines, and, uh, as you do. And you look at the weight machine, don't you, and there's like a pin in the weights that tells you how, how much weight you're going to lift. And I could see the guy who was using it. He was about to finish using it, so it was my chance to come and, to come and use it. And uh, just as he was kind of moving away, I noticed that the weight on the pin in the weight was probably a bit heavier, a bit further down than I would normally be able to lift, as you can probably tell. And, uh, and as this guy moved away from the, the machine, he kind of did what I think, if we're honest, a lot of us men kind of do. He just took an extra second just to look to see, to see what I was going to lift. Um, and he must have done that. It's a, it's a bit of a man thing in the gym, I have to say. Just an extra lingering look just to see what the next guy is going to lift, just to kind of compare yourself a little bit. And in that moment, <laughs> in that moment, as he just cast that extra lingering look, this little insecurity just popped up in me. And all the memories of my days of playing rugby and doing gym sessions and always being the weakest one and the smallest one, always, you can say, ah, oh, at that point if you want to, all of those memories... All of those memories came flooding back in that little look that he gave me. So I had two options in front of me, didn't I? Option A, of course, is just to simply calmly sit down, secure and confident in who I am, take the pin out, put it a little bit higher, and lift the lower weight as I was intending to do. Option B, of course, is to not do that, and to try and prove yourself to a man who you've never met before, and never likely to see again, and sit down and try and lift a much heavier weight, and strain and strain, and probably push just about one out before collapsing in a heap, and seeing him cast another lingering look of smugness as he finally walked away. Of course, I chose option B. <laughs> Little insecurities, they will just pop up at all interesting times. For me, all those memories of always being this weakest one on the rugby team, it just pushed the little button, little insecurity popped up. And the behavior went accordingly. And I would suggest I'm not the only one to know what it is to have little insecurities just out of the blue, just pop up. Anything to, something to do with our appearance, perhaps. Something to do with our job. Something to do with our educational background, whether we've been to university or not. Something to do with our family background, where we come from. And sometimes all it needs is just the smallest little poke for that insecurity just to, just to pop up. Your friend loses weight, and your insecurity about your appearance just pops up. Or you meet someone for the first time, and they ask you what job you do. And it just prompts that little insecurity about the job that you do. It pops up. It happens all the time. And as Christians, we can have those insecurities, and, and, many, and many more, even those we can have that are specific to our faith. We can have all kinds of little insecurities. Am I really, truly loved and approved of every single day? by God, because of who I am in Christ, every day. Sometimes these little insecurities can pop up. And Paul, in this passage, is suggesting that we can all fall into insecurity. He calls it falling back into fear. It's in verse 15. He calls it falling back into fear. And he says it can even enslave us. He says it can even enslave us. And his point is, this is not who the Christian is. Someone to be falling back into fear and insecurity and to be enslaved by that. That's not who you are if you're a Christian this morning. He says you don't have a spirit of fear, but rather you have a spirit of adoption. Now when you kind of hear that, you might have expected Paul to juxtapose you don't have a spirit of fear with you do have a spirit of 
confidence or a spirit of security. That would have been the obvious juxtaposition, wouldn't it? But he says you don't have a spirit of fear, you have a spirit of adoption, which for us maybe doesn't quite seem to tie in. But for Paul's audience in first century Rome, reading this letter for the first time, for them, these terms are some degrees synonymous. When they heard adoption, they heard security and confidence. For them, this is an epic, epic statement. It really is perhaps the most significant of all the statements about the gospel they've heard so far. And they, like us, these last nine weeks, have heard seven chapters worth of all of the different angles and accomplishments and achievements of Jesus' gospel. They've already heard really good reasons, haven't they, like we have, to be utterly secure and confident. They've heard that because of the death and resurrection of Christ over these last seven chapters, they've heard that order is established. They've heard that justice is done. They've heard that shame is removed. They've heard that approval is awarded. They've heard that love is guaranteed. That identity is transformed. That a perfect master is in town and a life of fruitfulness theirs. They've had good reason to be very secure and very confident. And yet this statement, that the gospel is the good news of adoption, adoption as children of God, is what gave them total security and confidence. Let me show you why that's the case, why adoption gives the gift of security and confidence, point two. Let me do this by just telling you a story, and it's not a true story as such, but it's a story that was played, it's a story that's played out all the time across first century Rome, just based upon the kind of story that would have been playing itself out all over the place across the Roman Empire in the first century. So let me introduce some characters to you. First of all, you've got Cornelia and Marcus. Cornelia and Marcus are a wealthy Roman couple who are going to appear behind me very shortly. There they are. Uh, Cornelia and Marcus are a wealthy Roman couple, as you can tell by their dress and dignified appearance. And uh, unfortunately, they've not been able to have children. They've tried for a long time and have not been able to have children. And so they are very keen to make sure that their large estate and household is inherited And so what they do is they go to some of the slaves in their large household. Now remember, we talked about, didn't we, Roman slavery, what that is a couple of weeks ago. You can listen to that talk if you want to know the context of slavery in the Roman Empire. And they go to a couple of parents, slave parents, in their household who've got a little boy, a little boy called Gaius, we'll call him. And uh, in, in Gaius, they see some real potential. Now, frankly, Gaius's parents, these slave parents, are pretty unpleasant people. They're not even very good at their job. They're pretty unpleasant. They're quite violent. But the little boy, Gaius, uh, Cornelia and Marcus see real potential in him. And so what Cornelia and Marcus do is they go to Gaius' parents, slaves, and say, we would like to adopt your son as our son and our heir. This is the kind of thing that would have played itself out all the time through the Roman Empire. And Gaius' parents, whilst being thoroughly unpleasant people, do recognize this is a wonderful opportunity for their son. Because no other way is he going to leave a life of slavery and suddenly inherit a vast, wealthy estate and household. They realize this is the only way he'll ever leave a line of slavery. And so they agree to um, Cornelia and Marcus's proposal. So what Cornelia and Marcus would now do is they would go to a Roman magistrate. Cornelia and Marcus would go to the magistrate along with the slave parents. And there would happen a very uh, kind of clear legal transaction for Gaius to leave the family that he was born into and to come into his adopted family. 
And what would happen is a rather strange little ceremony would take place. Marcus would basically shake hands three times with Gaius' natural father, the slave father. Why three times? Well, that was to symbolize something. It was to symbolize Gaius being sold and bought back three times. Why are they doing that? Because, unfortunately, a rather unpleasant practice had emerged in the Roman Empire, where sometimes rather um, you know, unpleasant parents would deliberately sell their children into a kind of temporary slavery in order to make some money, then buy them back maybe, or just or fetch them back, and then do it again. And so to stop that rather unpleasant practice, the Roman Empire had said, if you do that three times, then you lose all rights, any obligation, you lose all of that to your child. And so as Marcus and Gaius' his father play out this ceremony, it's a very important ceremony because it symbolizes ties being completely cut with Gaius' natural family. Once that ceremony is concluded, there is no legal connection at all between Gaius and his natural slave parents. He is now legally adopted into Marcus and Cornelia's family. He's brought into a brand new family with all of the privileges and obligations of their son and heir. All previous ties have been broken. So when Paul's readers heard, you've got a spirit of adoption, this is the kind of thing that they are hearing. I want to give you three things in particular that they would hear when they hear this uh, metaphor of adoption. Number one, they would hear the, the language of legal security. They would hear the language of legal security. They knew that adoption was something that gave you total legal security. Those bonds could not be broken. And we see that, I guess, in similar situations today with my story at the beginning of said, he is now legally a Cathy that has been guaranteed and stamped in a court of law. But even more so in the Roman Empire. And what's more... Actually, the rights of an adopted son were in some senses even greater than the rights of a natural son in the Roman Empire. Because under Roman law, if you and your son fell out, became estranged, you were allowed to disown him, cut him off. Your natural son could be cut off from the inheritance. If you adopted a son, you could not do that. Once you'd made this legal transaction to adopt a son, you could not break those barriers. You could not disown him, even though you could disown a natural son. You see, so the legal security of adoption in the Roman Empire is profound. And this is the kind of language that the um, first century church in Rome would be hearing. The second thing they are hearing when they hear the language of adoption is they hear the language of choice. So they hear the language of legal security. They also hear the language of choice when they hear this metaphor of adoption. They knew that adoption was a matter of choice, especially in their time. Adoption was when often a wealthy father like Marcus, a patriarch, or even the emperor would go and choose, and it was always a son in those days, he would go and choose a male and adopt him into his family. It was always a matter of choice. Only one of the first century Roman emperors was not adopted. All the other emperors chose a new son and heir to be their adopted son and heir. It's a profound nature of choice. It's quite, maybe slightly different to how we view adoption today, although obviously there are parallels. And Paul emphasizes this in other contexts. He's writing to a church in Ephesus. He writes a letter to them and he wants them to understand this choice element 
And he says, in love, God predestined us, chose, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It's a choice matter. Now I say this every time I speak on adoption or the father heart of God because it's really, really important. To be a Christian is never, ever, ever to have stumbled into the family of God, to have snuck in by the back door. It's always to have been chosen specifically, intentionally, by the eternal Father God of the universe. He has always been Father, hasn't he? Father, Son, Spirit for eternity. And every time he marks people out and he chooses them into his family. Some of you are like, yeah, of course he chooses me. For others of you, this is probably your biggest deal. I know it is because of the conversations over the years. And you need to try and let the Holy Spirit do what he does in this very passage. It says the Holy Spirit bears witness, testifies, legal language again, testifies to the fact of your adoption. And adoption is a fact of choice. So I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, would you bear witness and would you testify in hearts right now all across this room that to be a Christian is to be a man or a woman who has been chosen. Marked out with special attention to be brought in as an heir and a child of God. For those of you who got brought up in Christian homes, maybe never know anything else but being a follower of Jesus, you did not just sneak into God's family via some door your parents opened. Though thank you God that they showed you the way didn't. God chose. That's what he always, always does. And when the Roman audience hear adoption, they know it. They know it's a choice thing. They know that's, when, that's when powerful, strong male figures go and choose the person they really want to be in their family. And they make a legal transaction to guarantee it's the case. That's what those Roman listeners are hearing. Is that what you're hearing this morning? Say it again. To be a Christian is to be one who has been chosen, specially picked out, not through anything that you did, but as an overflow, a waterfall-like overflow of a loving Father God. If you take away nothing else from this morning and you're a Christian, please take away that. If you're not a Christian, you're wondering whether, am I chosen? <laughs> I would argue that the fact that you're here, hearing this particular angle of the gospel, would suggest that you are. So they hear the language of legal security when they hear adoption. They hear the language of choice when they hear adoption. And they hear the language of privilege. They hear the language of privilege. All the privileges of a natural child pass to the adopted son in Roman culture. So as soon as little Gaius is adopted into Marcus and Cornelius' family, he has all of the privileges that their natural son would have had. All of them. It says in this passage that we are co-heirs with Christ. And we'll look next week at what it means to inherit. That's what an heir is, an heir is isn't it? We'll look next week at what it is to inherit uh, alongside Christ. But one of the many parts of the inheritance that we receive immediately is referred to in this passage. So in Christi as Christians we have an inheritance, don't we? Something we can look forward to forever. And some things we receive now, other things we receive in the future, in eternity, as we were hearing earlier on. 
But Paul uses this wonderful phrase, Abba, Father, doesn't he? In verse 15. Abba, Father, which if you are a Christian, you probably would have heard that phrase a number of times before. And I found myself this week totally <laughs> tangled up in all kinds of commentary controversies about the true meaning of the, of the phrase and what it actually, where it actually comes from. And does Abba mean Daddy or does it mean Dad? And if it doesn't, what do we do about this? Commentators get very, very exercised about this stuff. But here's what I think Paul is trying to get at. Abba, Father was the phrase that Jesus used. Mark quotes it in his gospel account of Jesus, how Jesus prayed to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba is Aramaic, something like dad. Jesus would have used maybe the Greek word, pater, for father. You put those two together, Mark chooses to translate it, Abba, Father, because he saw something absolutely profound in what Jesus said. When Jesus talked to the God of Israel, the mighty God of Israel, Yahweh, as we've sung before, and Jesus spoke to him as his dad, Mark realized that was a profound moment. And what the New Testament writers realize is not only was that a a profound moment, when Jesus, in another context, taught his disciples how to pray and said, pray like this, our Father in heaven, he was inviting them in to the same relationship, the same inheritance, if you like, that he had with the Father. That was a profound moment, if you like, of theology that kind of unpacked itself in Jesus' life and after Jesus' life. And what Paul is saying is that part of your privilege, part of your privilege as an adopted child of God is to relate to God like Jesus does and to call him Abba, Father. Some of you heard this many times before, many, many times before. But if you're like me, it does occasionally have to take a little bit of kind of Holy Spirit work for it to really sink in. What does it really mean to know God as Abba Father, as Dad, in that intimate sense? I had a little picture that I haven't uh, got with me this morning, but I'll just mention it nonetheless, because I feel like I should. <laughs> Here's a picture of a little Jewish girl kissing her dad. Right smack on the lips. And the photographer entitled the picture, Kisses for Abba was the title of the picture in a Jewish uh, photography exhibition. And it just kind of stirred something in me as to the inheritance, the privilege that is ours. It's kind of a bit of a, for me anyway, a bit of a kind of head bend, think of, can I, can I kiss God on the lips? Is that, what is that what it's saying? But I think what I'm trying to say is it's, it's the level of intimacy that Abba means. That's what I'm trying to get to. That's part of the privilege of the Christian. Is literally like a little girl or a little boy to confidently, yeah, plant a smacker on God because it's that level of intimacy and joy. Kisses for Abba was the name of the photograph. Abba Father is the privilege that Paul believes that adoption invites us into. And Paul's, re- Paul's readers realized that he was trying to tell them something pretty profound. They understood that this doctrine of adoption was one of legal certainty, bonds that can't be broken. They understood that it was one of loving, specific choice. And they understood that it was one of enormous privilege. And that, I would suggest, gave them total security and total confidence. The gospel of adoption, the angle of adoption, is what brings us total security and total confidence. To be a Christian is one who has been adopted to security and to confidence. And when you know who you are, then you can start to take action 
I would suggest. When you know who you are, when you have this secure identity, all my shame dealt with, all approval credited to me, love guaranteed, a brand new identity, a life of fruitfulness, adopted into the loving, secure family of God, when you know that, then Christians and churches can take extraordinary action with that level of security and confidence. Paul even says, as an aside in that verse that we often leave out, so I mustn't leave it out, he says, oh, and by the way, you're an adopted child if you suffer like Jesus. And we often leave that out. He doesn't mean that's a condition. He means when you're this secure and this confident in who you are as a child of God, you will count it a joy to suffer on behalf of Christ. That's what he means. So a response, an invitation to action this morning. We've heard about the threat of insecurity and how the gospel angle of adoption brings the gift of confidence. So I want to invite you to action Three possible responses this morning. Number one, to recognize that we are no no longer in the previous family or to use Paul's language, under the previous slavery. Don't go back there is what he is saying. That's what he's been saying over and over again in different metaphors and angles to help us understand it. These last two chapters, he said, before you were a Christian, you used to live somewhere else or you used to have a different master or you used to give yourself to a different relationship, or you used to have a different family. Whatever metaphor he uses that works for you, don't go back there, is what he's saying. It's not, don't you dare sin anymore. It's, look at who you are, and don't go back to what you were. Do you see the heart of Paul that comes through? It's the heart of Jesus. Not wagging his finger, don't you dare sin anymore. He said, why would you ever want to go back there? What's the stuff that so easily entangles, to paraphrase Paul? Sometimes it's just good old plain sin, (laughs) greed, whatever. Sometimes, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, it's the sin of making good desires over desires, remember? So they become inordinate desires, things that control us. We have to have them, and it's like we're enslaved by them. Or is it the slavery of desperately trying to follow the rules? hoping that we can earn other people's approval or indeed God's approval. Paul would say, God would say this morning, don't go back there. Repentance is not a heavy word. Repentance is part of the lifestyle of the Christian. Remember, if you're this secure about who you are, you can say, God, I got it wrong. I'm sorry, I went back there again. Forgive me, teach me, lead me on as a son and daughter. Repentance can be a joyful thing. Secondly, for some of us, it's less about leaving behind slavery and more about genuinely learning to live as a son. And ladies, I don't know if this jars at all, whether you keep hearing about son, 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 son. But it's a sonship. It's an heirship that men and women in Christ are invited into. And yes, Paul is using a cultural metaphor. It's childhood that we're being invited to walk in the good off. And some of us find this really hard to really relate to God as Abba Father. Kisses for Abba. Some of us find that hard. Often because we've had poor earthly fathers or worse. And we tend to see Abba Father through the lens of our experience of earthly father. So, look what the passage says. The Holy Spirit bears witness and testifies to your spirit that you are a child of God. That's what Paul's saying. 
So your spirit kind of knows it. You get it in here. And then what Paul is saying is the Holy Spirit comes in and he, secu- he guarantees it. He emphasizes it. Legal language. He testifies, bears witness to it. For some of you, that is your application this morning. Holy Spirit, will you please come and bear witness to what I know up here to be true so that it sits in here and I live freely as a child of God. Holy Spirit does that. That's why I prayed it earlier on. Third and final possible call to action is consider adoption. Is to consider adopting children yourself. Something that I felt God speaking to me about uh, maybe towards last year, beginning of this year, that we uh, could begin to explore what it might be to be a church that lives out this glorious gospel pinnacle by literally adopting or fostering children in our borough, in our nation, or in our world. And I began to pray into it a little bit and uh, didn't really know what it meant or where it was going to go. But to my great delight, over the summer, uh, three or four couples at different moments just came to me and said they were considering uh, getting into this process of adoption. Ask her what more uh, lies behind the story. Uh, what we're going to be doing is this. On the, on the 6th of, uh, of December, we're going to have an evening at which Jason and Wendy are kindly going to host. And uh, there's already seven or eight of us who are going to be uh, part of that evening. Uh, some couples who are already interested in this process. Um, and what that evening really is for is I'd like to invite anybody, any particular couple, any, sorry, I'll start again. What that evening is for is any couple who are, particularly liked, who are particularly interested in joining the adoption process, however early that process might be. You have some interest in thinking this might be something for us. That evening is also for anybody who might think, Do you know what, I'm not sure this is necessarily for me as a single person or for us, but I would be interested in being part of a church that support those that do adopt. So let me say that again. It's an evening for those who are interested in joining the adoption process, potentially, or for anybody who is interested in supporting those that do. And Jason and Wendy are going to host that evening on the Sunday, the 6th of December. You can uh, speak to Wendy afterwards. She'd love to kind of book you down, as it were. You can speak to me afterwards, or you could email office at kingschurch.com to say that you would like to go. And also, on your way out, you're going to get a flyer from a charity called Home for Good, uh, which I know some of you uh, went to their event in the, sum- in the summer. They held an event uh, at, in Chessington uh, for any bit people interested in, uh, any Christians in churches interested in adopting. Home for Good are a charity that I'm considering that we might partner with more intentionally. They're doing an amazing job in the space just a couple of years, and their vision really is very simple. They say they're in contact with about 15,000 churches. There are about 15,000 children who are in foster care at the moment who need fostering or adopting, and there's some pretty simple maths as a result. So their vision is if each church was to adopt or foster one child, national crisis averted, national crisis solved. It's a wonderful and very simple vision that they have. And so I would encourage you to take that flyer as you leave and to to read it through, to pray it through. And uh, I don't want to make anything, if you like, more of this than it is other than to lay my heart before you, which is that I feel God has spoken to me. And I want to lay that before you this morning for you to consider. And uh, for me, there's a little quote that I read this week that is a little bit intellectually pompous, perhaps. Um, But it just helped me to help us. I'll read it a couple of times, and we'll see if we can see if it helps us. 
This is what a guy said who was encouraging churches to persist or pursue adoption. He said, without the theological aspect, the emphasis on adoption too easily is seen as mere charity. Without the missional aspect, the doctrine of adoption is too easily seen as mere metaphor. Let me say it again. Without the theological aspect, the emphasis on on adoption can too easily be seen as just charity. Without the missional aspect, the doctrine of adoption can too easily be seen as mere metaphor. What's he saying? He's saying that adopting in any circumstance is a great charitable thing to do. But if it's not driven by the theological pinnacle of the Christian gospel, it's, it's charity, which is good but it's just charity. That's what he's saying on the one hand. Then he's saying that if the doctrine of, the, of, of adoption, the gospel angle of adoption, simply stays as a doctrine for the Christian to enjoy and doesn't get outworked in a missional, finding orphans to adopt way, it's only a mere metaphor. Does that make sense? It's not trying to be a heavy thing or a intellectually or emotionally manipulative thing. It's just kind of struck a chord with what I feel God has been saying. That we as Christians have got this glorious, glorious gospel angle. It's the best bit, I would say, of the whole gospel. It's what brings total security and confidence. If as a church, we only enjoy that amongst ourselves, and it never in any way gets outworked and mirrors the heart of God the Father, who went after orphans like you and I. And gave them a hope and a future and a purpose. (laughs) I don't want the tears to get in the way. It's not an emotionally manipulative thing. I just want you to see what I think God has been saying and to prayerfully consider it. You do that? Thank you. (laughs) I'm going to invite the band up and we're going to worship our amazing adopting father together. Like I've said to you, I think there are a couple of possible ways to respond. One is a spiritual response for us as an individual Christian or as a couple. And it's specifically to ask the Holy Spirit to come and bear witness to our hearts so that we live like adopted children. Whether that means leaving behind slavery, whether it means living more fully and confidently and freely as children. You might want to say, Holy Spirit, I know that's true. You've got to come and help me believe that it's true and live in the good of it. For others of you, or maybe the same ones, it's this more practical thing of being parents or being single people who might be the kind of church that mirrors the Father heart of God and plucks an orphan from the kind of future they were going to have into a future of hope and meaning and purpose. Do we stand? Um, we, norm- we normally share communion during this series, uh, but on this occasion, I think we're, we're just going to leave that actually. So, if stewards, thank you. We're just not going to share communion, not because I've suddenly changed my theological beliefs. 
Um, but I just want us to, to sit in this moment and to worship. Is that okay? <laughs> Father God, Abba Father, we praise and thank you for this glorious angle of the gospel that on top of dealing with our guilt and shame, on top of ensuring that justice was done and will be done, on top of guaranteeing us of all of the approval and love that you feel for the Son, on top of all of that, you have made us sons and daughters in your family. Jesus, you went into battle to bring orphans into the family of God and we're so grateful that you did that. We're so grateful that you came out the other side, leaving an empty tomb behind, raised from death to life, to give us newness of life, newness of life as children of the living God, heirs to an extraordinary inheritance, and the delight and the joy of knowing you as Abba Father. We love you, Father. We ask that you would work powerfully in this church, that we would know deep into our guts, Holy Spirit, help us know it deep into our guts, that we are an adopted, chosen child in the family of God. And I pray, God, that as you speak to this church, that we would begin to outwork that by being a church that is brilliant news to children without parents all over the world. Amen.